What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, have I told you about that dream I had the other day? What dream? So I had this dream. It was a sweaty dream? Nah. Okay. I was on this adventure. Yep. Well, I was in Germany during this dream. You're in Germany? Yeah. Were you and wearing I, Lederhausen? I was, yes. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> uh, definitely was. And I was drinking steins of beer. And I just got this overwhelming need to buy a dog. Oh, I think I know where you're going with this. Yeah. So I just popped on over to House Hamburg Shepherds. Oh, why wouldn't you? Yeah. You'd have to. And I know that they have the best German Shepherds, but the German Shepherds. So I bought one of their Dutchies. Oh. Man. The best. Shit-mouthing German Shepherd. <laughs> <laughs> and so so then in this dream, I, I finished my giant beer and mm-hmm. I took off my Lena Hosen. Yep. And I got that Dutchie mm-hmm. and I put it on a plane yep. because they can ship them anywhere. It turns out I didn't have to even be there to buy this dog in this dream. Right. And I, I flew it over to the US. Yep. Right. So when I got there, I realized I need some equipment for this dog, this Dutchie that I've got. Wait. Were you in Canada or were you in the US? Well, I was in North America or somewhere. It's not important exactly where. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so I thought, oh, you know what I need? Some like training gear, some collars, some leashes, harnesses. So guess where I got it from? It sounds like it's a big lead up to an old mate, Mach LaPointe. Mach LaPointe. I just yep. got onto Canon Dynamics yep. and had it shipped to me. Mm. Didn't matter where I was in the US or North America, actually. Yep. I had Canon Dynamics ship it to me. It was wonderful. wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, then I'm out training this Dutchie mm-hmm. in his all of his fancy equipment. The yep. Dutchie that I got from House Hamburg Shepherds mm-hmm. using the equipment I got from Canon Dynamics. Yep. And then I was training in dog park because that's how I train. Mm-hmm. And there were some people and they had some <laughs> sort of unruly behavior from their dog. Yep. And I think at this point I was in Ashland, Virginia. and uh, Fancy I, that. I thought, I said to them, they were like, oh, can you help us with this dog? I said, no, fuck you. I don't no, want to. I'm a dog part daddy. <laughs> <laughs> I said, fuck you, I don't want to. Yep. But I know someone who will come to your home here in Ashland, Virginia, while you're at work and will do like a little bit of a training session with your dog while you're gone. No way. You're not talking about Melanie Benway. It was Melanie Benway I was Bloody talking hell. about. Kindred Canine. So I g- gave those details. Anyway, so I went on to, you know, do some cool things with this Dutchie. Mm-hmm. And then I had to come back to Australia yep. and I brought the dog. Wow. But you know what I didn't bring? What? Was any of his equipment. He left it all there. I left it all there. Okay. So I needed all new gear. And guess where I got my leashes, collars, tugs, harnesses. Dog mills. Blah, 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 blah. Buffed Central. Einswick dog clip. Einswick Buffed. Yeah. Yeah. And when I got here, I realized, oh, you know what? I had been traveling this fictional dog in my dream around Mm -hmm. in the crate that he was shipped from uh, House Hamburg Shepherds. Yeah. Well, I need a custom crate now. So I had a custom crate bill by the Buffed. Wow. Einswick.com. Einzerwiener? Einzerwiener. Yeah. Einzerwiener. Yeah. So after your dream, when you woke up, did you wake up with a boner? You've ruined it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And joining us on the phone all the way from Connecticut is Michael Shkasho. Michael, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Oh, it's really cool to have you on the show, Michael. I think you are one of the most requested people that we get. Whenever we put out mm. the call, like, hey, who should we get on the show? Your name comes up quite a lot. Amongst others, because we're working through the list as, as we get access to people. So, yeah. so again, thanks very much for joining us. It's funny, we got a little bit of shade a while ago because people were saying that we needed to, well, one person was saying that we needed to have real dog trainers on the show. But Pat and I, <laughs> we, we're laughing about this. Pat and I have always maintained that this is a people's training show. Like it's about we'll go in the direction that the community wants us to go in. So now that we've developed a community in the canine paradigm, we want to talk to all people, not just exclusive to the world's best dog trainers. You know, like we want to talk to them and we want to talk to the communities and everybody in between it as well. We feel that that's uh, an important ethos for where we're trying to take the direction of the show. And I mean, you know, Pat was talking about you in one of our episodes a while ago. I was listening to you chatting on Clubhouse some time ago as well. I liked what you were talking about, and it was always an intention of ours to get you on the show. Welcome, Michael. It sounds like we were saying that you're not a great dog trainer. It was because we had a, a oh, dog owner shade. on the last episode. <laughs> so to clarify that, we do think you're a great dog trainer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so... Michael Shkasha, super well-known aggression specialist and, you know, working within sort of mostly the plus R space. Most people know your name. They've seen your stuff. You own the URL, probably the best uh, URL that any dog trainer has. It, what, it's aggressivedog.com, isn't it? Which is, I think is- yep. Congratulations on that. Yeah. <laughs> That's the best. And funnily enough, he sponsors his own podcast. <laughs> but let's go back in time. How did you get into dog training? What's the story for you? Thanks again, guys, for having me. It's a real pleasure and honor to be here. My journey started years ago in the rescue and fostering and kind of rescue dog type of scenario. So I had volunteered for a lot of rescues when I was much younger and was fostering dogs in my house. I'd worked at a casino at the time of all things, so I wasn't even into dog training at that time. But I always wanted a business of my own, so I started to look at dog businesses because I really love dogs, of course and was focusing on maybe a dog daycare, but that never panned out. And then I got more into dog behavior because I thought, you know, what best way to help these dogs that I'm seeing going into or surrender to shelters or rescues or being relinquished by owners is because of behavior issues. And it's one of the number one reasons for owner relinquishment, at least in the United States, and aggression being one of them. And I found that there wasn't a lot of information out there about helping dogs with aggression or helping new adopters uh, deal with aggression issues, even minor ones. So I kind of started to pursue that path. I wanted to get into behavior and training and one thing led to another and I started to really look up every single dog trainer and anybody that was talking about aggression at the time, which wasn't much in the you know late 80s, early 90s. That's where it kind of came about. I did. I digested literally everything, like any book, every single book on like dog-wise, I ordered all of the seminars and the conferences I could attend, anything that had to do with aggression. I was just a real junkie for it all, just because there wasn't a lot of information. I really wanted to do the best for the dogs. And so I started working with training dogs on a what we usually start out with basic issues, pulling on leash and all those things and start to gradually take on lower level aggression cases. And that turned into strictly taking aggression cases, which I've been doing for about a decade now on, the, on just the aggression cases. And um, I really like that because I, I found that specializing or focusing on one area 
forces you to get better at it <laughs> one way or mm-hmm. another. And you really got to like it. And so I found that, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I love this aggression stuff. I, I like helping the dogs. I like the outcomes that can be achieved if, uh, if things are going right. And, you know, you can really help a lot of dogs doing that. And that branched out into uh, teaching other trainers how to work with aggression, because what better way to help more dogs is to continually uh, help other trainers learn how to work with aggression cases. So that's been my main focus over the last few years, and I've been really enjoying it. So that's my little journey through aggression. And I Let's, did buy the aggressivedog.com website name many years ago. Paid quite a few dollars for it, but uh, I finally it. put it to use about five years ago. Mm, nice. Hey, let's go all the way back. When you said you were working in this shelter or volunteering in this shelter and you're seeing you know, dogs being surrendered because of behavioral cases, what percentage of those do you think were aggressive? And we've discussed this quite a bit with people on the show about how you know dogs in a shelter environment are often not themselves. Can you talk a little bit to that and your experience with that back then versus how you feel about it now? Yeah, that's so deep question there because we can get into what happens when we are looking at dogs in certain environments and assessing them in certain environments and putting a, an outcome, potential outcome based on what we're seeing in the potential environments that can differ when we see dogs in a shelter environment versus in a forester situation versus one that's actually owned by somebody. And so I've learned a lot about shelter assessments. My colleague, Trish McMillan, has taught me pretty much everything I know about them. She's the, the shelter guru out there. And so she's taught me much about shelters and how assessments work in that regard, because much of what I knew was formerly, you know, working with smaller shelters and with rescues and fostering dogs and that type of system in terms of the assessments. And, you know, the assessments were all over the place in terms of how we would look at dogs. We would see dogs with really gnarly bite histories, you know, very dangerous dogs that would, because you get attached to these dogs or the rescues get attached to them or the volunteers in the rescues get attached to them. And so we would deem that dog, well, a little bit of work. We can always rehab this dog, which is totally different now in the way I look at those cases. And then on the other side of the coin, you might have a shelter saying, oh, this dog is growling near the food bowl. We can't adopt this dog out. It's dangerous. So yes, you see a lot of different perspectives depending on where you're at in your journey and where what kind of uh, help the in information that particular organization has, what kind of uh, work they've done with aggressive dogs or dogs with aggression. And that's going to influence the perception of what the potential outcome is, mm-hmm. whether it's a shelter, a rescue, you know, foster. So I've grown a lot since then, thankfully, in terms of how I view aggressive dogs and what potential outcomes can be. It's not, it's not a black and white, yes or no kind of thing. There's a lot of variables to assess and you want to assess those properly to really make the best decisions and for the best outcomes for the dogs. Yeah. It's such a tricky one, that shelter assessment. And exactly as you say there, you know, mentioning, oh, he growls in the presence of the bowl and, and, you know, it it can go the opposite way sometimes I think as well. Like I've seen many of dogs come out of shelters that are, you know, meek and really, they seem great, (laughs) really biddable little dogs, but it turns out they're horrendous resource guarders and the shelter, they didn't have a single resource. So you couldn't even know that that was there, right? Mm. I think one of the other aspects about shelters is it's shrouded in emotion as well. And as you were saying before, there's a lot of, well, there can be a lot of favoritism with some dogs, you know, like somebody will like a specific type of breed and therefore they want to rescue that breed and specifically that breed. And they want to do everything they can to make sure that dog gets a home. But as you said, Michael, I mean, I've seen some really, really dangerous dogs before that the rescue center 
even though they feel in their heart and soul that they were doing the right thing, the right thing wasn't to let that dog out of the center. It's gone into a home where all it became is somebody else's nightmare. And then they felt incredible pressure to maintain the status of that dog and to try and keep it alive and to try and keep it out of trouble and to try and keep themselves safe from the actual behavior of the dog as well. So it's a very tough one. Yeah. Human emotion can certainly skew objectivity, mm. right? And 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 I've seen it impacted in many different ways, again, either for the best or for the worst in some cases. And we can't blame humans. I mean, humans, we get attached to the dogs and we have emotions and the dogs have emotions and we see that. So we, I don't, I don't, I, I don't ever blame anybody for making a decision I wouldn't necessarily agree with for the outcome of a dog because they're going through their journey. You know, mm. when I first started with fostering dogs, I'm like, oh yeah, I've watched a few episodes of Dog Whisperer. I could totally fix these dogs. We have them all, fix them all, no problem. <laughs> you know, a couple of days spend in my home, I'll fix them right up. And that was so save them all. You know, this dog, you know, mauled somebody last week, but they're going to be fine if they spend a couple of days with me. So I was, I was full of all of this, you know false expectations and really uh, just being naive at the time. And that's shifted, of course, because the more you learn, the more you learn what's realistic, what can be expected for certain outcomes. And I see that journey and I appreciate that journey when I see, you know, dogs being adopted out or dogs in a rescue organization or, and I get contacted for this all the time, you know, can you come assess the dog? You let us know what you think. And, you know, 99% of the time, I don't need to see the dog in person. I can just get the history and that's going to give me all the information I need to assess a potential outcome for that particular dog. But again, you're going to see the people so attached and you can't blame them. You know, they spent maybe eight months fostering a dog. You know, how do you not get attached to a dog living in your home? And then you have to make the, that decision. Is there going to be behavioral euthanasia potentially? That's very, very difficult to face if you're the foster person, right? But, and it's a normal response. I mean, who, who wouldn't want to be attached and who want, wouldn't want to see the best outcome for that animal? So uh, that's one extreme. And then, of course, you have the other extreme where it's, you know, dogs that are perfectly, would be perfect candidates for a lot of homes. But because of population issues or a lack of demand, those dogs don't even make it to the adoption floor. So that's the emotions involved. You know, you get opposite extremes and Unfortunately, a lot of the uh, the infighting we see in our industry also happens because of those things. But we have to remember, you know, we, human emotion is a very normal thing. And especially when it comes to animals, we're going to see more human emotions, right? Yeah, of course. Hey, can we pick apart something you just talked about there when you were fostering dogs early days and perhaps didn't have, well, certainly didn't have the level of expertise that you have now? And I'd like to, if we can sort of, you know, follow the story arc of your training journey and and how you, you know, evolve as a trainer. Something that I think is, I find that people like to hear about on the show is when you're talking with the experts, talking about the times where before they were an expert. Mm. <laughs> and, and I think because a lot of people coming into the industry, it's dealing with aggression especially can be extremely overwhelming. And, you know, like we hear about people within the industry that say, oh, you know, I just do behavior modification, but I don't deal in aggression. Or, you know, because it's that, it's considered that kind of, that final step in the behavior case sort of thing. And for some people were just like, no, nah, I'd do it straight away, right? <laughs> and yeah. jump into it. <laughs> and which, you know, I probably was part of that because I didn't really, those early days didn't really have any kind of mentor or guidance. And, and I fucked up heaps of dogs, right? Like I'm totally, it, well, not fucked up, but I, I think what I did 
and it's what I'd like to tease apart with these fosters where you say they've mauled someone and you think you can fix them in three days is like I put bandages on some like really bad sucking chest wounds <laughs> that needed a lot more treatment. But I was like, here's a Band-Aid, you're good to go and out you go and didn't really understand what I was doing in that space. So is there a specific case that you can speak to early days where you think, oh, I would like another shot at that? I'd do things really differently. Oh, yeah, there's definitely a bunch of cases. I'm lucky to be alive <laughs> thinking about some of the <laughs> cases I took on early on. I mean, I was really just naive and stupid about some of the things I did at first when I first started training. But, you know, that's the journey, right? When you first start on training, you, you go through this journey of like, you finally feel like you're learning something, and you know, a lot, and then you realize you don't know anything. <laughs> and I think to remain in, in, in a stage of growth is important. So even now, I don't consider myself necessarily an expert. I just consider myself hungry for information and always making sure I'm learning and open to learning. So because there's every day I'm discovering things that I don't know about with my research or if I'm talking to somebody or somebody that's uh, you know well-known uh, in terms of their particular niche, that's going to reveal some information for me that, hey, I don't, I don't know what they're talking about. This is new for me. So I'm still learning as I go. I think that's really important to state because it, that will prevent people from ever saying, you know, I know everything and or hopefully prevent some people from saying that. Uh, but I started out, I mean, I started out, my first mentor was a military dog trainer, very old school, uh, choke chain. I mean, the first few days, uh, you don't even touch a dog. You've got a choke chain attached to a chain link fence and you learn how to do proper collar corrections for days that it's like, you know, like practicing a martial art, you just do the same motion over and over and over until you just sort you know, quote unquote, master that skill. And so my first mentors and trainers and all of the people I worked on were traditional based, but that's prevalently was, was around at that time. There was some positive reinforcement training, but it hadn't made it to the mainstream quite as much as it has now. And so I spent a lot of time, you know, choke chains, corrections, uh, prong collars, e-collars, alpha type of theory, all of that stuff early on. And then I started to branch out more of being hungry for information. I, I stumbled upon the, at that time, was the Yahoo uh, groups, if you mm -hmm. remember those <laughs> yeah. back, in the, back in the old days. <laughs> those are now extinct, but I discovered some positive reinforcement training groups there. And I, I was taken under the wing of some very kind and caring trainers. I got shellacked and, uh, uh, and certainly told to go other places not so nicely by some people but i also had some people reach out to me privately and be like hey mike i see that you're talking on the list you have some questions you know why don't you read this or check this out and they were very nice to me and that made a significant impact in how i work with other trainers now mm -hmm. it really affected my career because it's a boy was it so nice for these people they didn't have to do that but they did and i found a couple mentors one was the late barbara brill which uh, she ran the ag bay which is the aggressive behaviors and dogs at that time yahoo group and she was very much into the science of behavior but also positive reinforcement-based training for aggression. And it was so it was a perfect fit. I you know, really focused on that group and started learning under that, under Barbara and also a bunch of other trainers that were on the list and started to find it, discover those circles. So, you know, and you, you guys know how this works. You kind of find these little camps mm -hmm. or these circles you start to learn more from. And so I started learning more about positive reinforcement training. So I guess you would then call me more of a balanced trainer at that time. Mm -hmm. And it continued to, my journey continued to go from there 
where I started to meet other trainers, uh, you know, at either conferences or um, seminars, local seminars, or on the internet. Again, to the, it was again back in the Yahoo Groups days, and they continued to uh, help me grow in terms of my training journey uh, to the point where I started actually mentoring other trainers. And I took the same, I, I made sure I promised to myself and I promised to Barbara too, in, in a way, she, she passed away a couple of years ago, but I promised to her that I would continue to do the same thing. Look, if there's a trainer that wants to learn, I don't care where they're from, what their background is in training. If they're open to learning, I'm going to just dish out what I know. And if they like it or find value in what I'm teaching, great. If not, that's okay too. But I've, I found that that was the best thing for me to do to continue that journey to help others is to really be open and, you know, take anybody, it doesn't matter their training background or whatever, any background, I'm going to take them under in, in um, under my wing, so to speak, and show them everything I know. And now I feel like I'm doing that on, of course, much more of a mass scale with the, the courses and everything. But I think that's really important in, in any trainer's growth is to remain open regardless of methodology. And that's vice versa too. That's for, you know, what we would, label as force-free or positive trainers looking to other trainers that might not be in that same philosophy to learn from others and other philosophies because there is still things to learn. That kind of um, hope that kind of answers the question of training journey. Yeah, it does a little bit. And what I just want to sort of tease apart a little bit is you, start, you said you started out sort of with a old school former military handler and you can imagine the yank and crank style. And then you've ended up where you are now where Totally correct me if I'm wrong, but you're sort of a, a no tools trainer. So you would call yourself a you know positive reinforcement based trainer, but sort of more, you know, I, I would call myself that. So like to more narrowly define it, you'd say that you perhaps don't use prong collars, e-collars, that kind of a, equipment, right? Right. But I don't openly advertise that. <laughs> you know, I, I don't feel the need to. Mm -hmm. I, I hope for the day where everybody's just called the dog trainer mm -hmm. without having to be put into a certain camp, mm -hmm. force-free, positive. You know, I, people do that for me. <laughs> right? yeah. they'll, they'll put me into the like, oh, Mike's a great force-free trainer or a positive trainer. I've even been called a balance trainer, you know, and I never correct people. I'm like, okay, call me what you want based on what you see. But, uh, you know, to answer your question, Pat, yeah, I, 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 I no longer use e-collars, uh, prong collars or choke chains, but I understand how to use them and uh, certainly have used them in the past, but for sure. what I'm doing now, I, I don't see the need to. Yeah. And, and I don't mean to try and put you in a box. I just am trying to explain this sort of journey because that's what I want to sort of understand yeah. is that how you came through there to a point where there was probably an overlap, right? Where you were very effective with positive reinforcement, but still using the tools. And I'm, I'm interested in what were the cases and what was the catalyst for you saying like, hey, I'm going to continue just focusing more on this and put these tools down? You know what? That's a really great question. I, I don't think there was any particular moment because that shift going from tools, some tools you're relying on or using is a slow shift, I think, for most. I don't think it's something where you can say, all right, I'm done using those, especially if you use those tools quite often in your work, right? And then all of a sudden you can't use them. That doesn't usually occur. It's usually a slower shift. Okay, I'm not going to use it in this case mm -hmm. because I don't need to. Maybe I've learned something else that I don't need to. And then also this case or this type of case or with this type of dog. And as you go along, you start to say, okay, that worked, you know, whatever positive technique I used there worked with that dog. So I can probably use it on the next dog without having to go to this particular tool. So, you know, I think it's to answer the question, it's, it's been in bits and pieces, chunks along the way, rather than any one moment saying, oh, it's like I've got an epiphany, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. It's, it was more just generally learning how 
to, to incorporate more of the positive training strategies with each particular type of case where I would have reached for a certain tool in the past. Mm-hmm. And what did you notice changed along that way? Like for me, I do use whatever tools I have opportunity to use, but I also have clients that you know, don't want to do that. Right. And I'm, you know, i try to fit within whatever, you know, it's their dog, they're paying me, I'll do whatever is going to be effective. So long as it's effective, we can take whatever journey. And for me, it usually is just a timeline thing. So is was that something you found as well? Like when you started not using tools and sort of taking away that negative feedback to the dog that I can communicate things like positively to the dog. But what I always find is that dealing in that space means that things sometimes take longer. Has that been your experience or not? It is. Yeah, that's very similar. So, you know, when we're first starting out with positive reinforcement strategies, the, the, the typical response or statement is that it takes much longer, but that's not necessarily true once you start to get really good at the positive techniques, just like any other technique. Once we get good at it and we start to uh, master that particular skill and how it applies, you're going to see the results much faster. We just, that's kind of the same principle with any training or any really anything we do out there on this planet. So I think, you know, it, it was more so also for you to believe it or for someone to believe a training method works, you've got to use it. You've got to see mm-hmm. it in action. You've got to see proof often in your own hands because you can watch others' videos and then you try to do it and you kind of stumble your way through something that somebody else has been doing for 20 years. Very, very common. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm definitely guilty of that. But going through and seeing that actually and applying those techniques was really important. But I also had to see some evidence, you know, in in terms of the literature or somebody else talking about it, not just, you know, some trainer that coined something with an acronym. I needed to see a little bit of data behind it, a little bit of science in some of the things as I started to go along and found that there was often a lot of science if you know where, knew where to look. So that was a part of, of me shifting towards it because that's how I really have framed my training strategies as of the last maybe 10 years or so is that I've got to see some data or something that says it's going to work in most cases, or it's proven to work in some scenarios versus some kind of, again, that's the word I'm looking for. Anecdotal. Uh, some sort of strat. Yeah. Something anecdotal or some, you know, training technique of the week towards sort of yeah, thing. Yeah. to see a little <laughs> bit more evidence. Yeah. I think that's one of the really, that's one of the things I, I really struggle with in the dog training space is, I want to follow the science. I do, I, I for sure. And I like, I think that a lot of the old school science is still pretty solid, but I think nowadays, and it, we've discussed this with other people and I know you we've been around it as well, that like some of the science these days just isn't what I would call good science. And a lot of the times when you see like good science done, a lot of the trainers that then read those studies go like, yeah, like, we know that we've been doing this. This is what we've been up to. So it's hard not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, when you see someone doing something and you go like, Hey, there's no evidence for that. There's no backup. Like you can't pull out a paper and show me, but if they're reproducing it reliably and it's effective and you can see it, chances are there is going to be a paper at some point that, that explains what they were doing and why it was working so well. So I struggle with that myself. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's it's very common to see that because you know, especially you guys know how it is. You see an argument on Facebook or something, and people start whipping out studies, that, and then you look, and that study has nothing to do with what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, or they, yeah. they misinterpret the science, you know. So there's there's terms for that where it's just you you kind of make the study bolster your argument, yeah. even though it has nothing to do sometimes. 
at least they're getting into some science, right? When you yeah. see that, you give them that credit. And the thing about aggression too is it's hard to do studies for aggression because of the ethical concerns and the safety concerns. So mm. it's one of the things that's least studied in, in canine behavior, unfortunately. It's well-researched in the human literature, but it's it's very difficult to see new data on aggression in dogs. So oftentimes you're extrapolating from human studies or you're looking at other behavior that uh, is not necessarily aggression, but applies in a similar manner. So yeah, the science is, is often very thin yeah. <laughs> in the line of work. So, so, you know, technically going back to what you're saying, if it's going to be replicated by many trainers over time, I mean, that technically if you get the data, you're looking that at counts. science. Yeah. Somebody's just got to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Could be, have it all collided. Yeah, well, I agree with, yeah. with with what both you were saying before because a lot of times when people are arguing on the internet about these sort of things, effectively what they're doing and what you both suggested before was they're producing selective or pseudosciences. So that's where yeah. they start losing people along the way because all the credibility starts blowing out the window. You know, you just get somebody who is really well-versed in reading papers and they come in and as you, as you suggested before, Michael, they'll say, this has nothing to do with the argument. You're producing material that, doesn't support your language. I don't know why you, you're producing this. Or it's it's so biased that it's not really actually a scientific paper. It's the opinion of somebody who thinks this is an ethical standpoint from where I sit. But, you know, it doesn't really support any of the sciences. And it's lovely that people have ethical standpoints. Don't get me wrong. I think we all should have ethical standpoints in a, in a lot more things. However, when it's suggested that this is the modern science on it, it really isn't. And that's fundamentally a lot of the arguments stem from. Very true. Very, very true. <laughs> once, that, once people start talking about science, you know something's going to go sideways at some point <laughs> in the conversation. So... <laughs> I just want to touch on something before we alluded early in the introduction that you're a fellow podcaster and you've got a podcast called The Bitey End of the Dog, which I've listened to several of your episodes and really enjoyed. What I did glean from several of the episodes that you've spoken on is a lot of the emotions of dealing with the people that you actually go around with. Like you really get into the nuts and bolts of how this is an effect, like how this affects the family that you're actually dealing with, or it affects the individual that you're dealing with. And you know, dealing with aggression that I, I've been in and out of this for many years. As I've told many people that we've done the show with before, the company that I work for owns several boarding kennels. So we're dealing with aggression on a daily basis. It's not just something that we see every now and then or, you know, like one here or one there. We have variations of aggression every single day in every resort that we have. So some dogs will come in, they'll be fine. They'll hit the kennel blocks and they'll freak out. You'll see fearful behaviors. You'll see resource guarding. You'll see genuine human aggression. You'll see dog-to-dog -dog aggression. So there are so many variations and forms of aggression that we'll see. And when you do have those conversations with the owners, it has to be a very surgical and very delicate conversation you're having with them because it's so personal Sometimes they know their dog is aggressive, yet they're very careful about how they have that conversation with you because they've been and faced so much rejection in their life about where they can take the dog and what they can do with it. We do allow a lot of aggressive dogs to come in because our staff know how to deal with it. They're confident to work with it. They've got me as a resource that they can speak to and we can manage whatever situation comes up. However, as I've said, and I'd still maintain with all the staff that if it is an ongoing issue or you do feel that your safety, your personal safety is compromised or the safety of those around you, we won't take the dog. 
it's not about just making money for us. If I really believe that my staff health and safety is going to be compromised by having that dog in the kennel, we just won't take it in. We may look at it as a private lesson or we may not, depending on the situation on how difficult the dog is and how bad the situation is. But the point I'm trying to make is that it's around us all the time. We're surrounded by it 365 days of the year. And as I said, I do maintain the point that some of them are very, very mild and occasionally some of them are very, very serious. And sometimes we only find that out when the dog is actually in there and we've gone in to try and relocate the dog or feed it or clean the kennel or take it out for a break and, you know, discovered that we took in Dr. Jekyll and now we're facing Mr. Hyde when we're trying to get in there by ourselves. So could you speak a little bit about that, please, Michael? Because I did enjoy some of your commentary back and forth about the difficulty in having conversations with the owner and all the emotions that are emerging through that. Yeah, you know, it's something that I stress to my students all the time, too, is that once you learn the behavior change strategies for dog aggression, mm. it's the same thing over and over and over. It can actually, and this sounds strange, but it's just it can actually be easier to work aggression cases than some other stuff that's out there. So if the number of behaviors, for instance, we need to teach for an agility dog to compete on a course Mm. is probably more work and more time than it is to modify aggressive behavior because we're working on the same concepts all the time. Yeah. It's history repeating itself. It's differential reinforcement strategies. It's the same thing over and over and over. So Mm. you can only, you know, you can only work with a dog that for instance, guards their food ball in so many different ways. Right. There's, there's one or two different well-known strategies out there that's going to work in most cases with some modifications. So you see the same for trainers working with aggression. We use the same things over and over. It's the people that are different. Mm. And so I really focus on ensuring that my students know how to navigate conversations, crucial conversations with clients really well. Because once you get in there, you could have, I've had this happen to me last, uh, right before the pandemic, I had a string of cases, three cases in the same day, the dogs were, you literally wouldn't be able to tell them apart if they were in the same body because the behaviors were exactly the same. Newly adopted dogs uh, displaying aggression towards one of the family members, three cases in a row in the same day. All the dogs you would treat exactly the same. It was the people that were completely different in each case. One case was extremely easy. One case was extremely difficult. And one case was sort of middle of the road standard, uh, you know, dog to human aggression case in the home. So I really stress that that those conversations you have with people are going to be different every time. It's going to be a different type of conversation, whether it's, you know, a person not taking it seriously or a person taking it much more seriously than they need to for their case. So navigating those conversations is probably the the best skill you can have because you also have a finite amount of time in a consult. So if you guys might maybe spend like an hour or, you know, my, I typically spend an initial consult 90 minutes to two hours with a client. I make every second count because in people have, for instance, uh, first of all, a, a finite attention span. Mm. So I'm not going to be able to sit them, sit with them for two and a half hours, even though I might be able to convey more information. They're only going to digest so much of that. Yep. So I've got 90 minutes to two hours max to make some really important points, uh, drive those home, but also make sure I'm understanding the client well. So I don't waste, I don't waste any time. Like oh, the whole 90 minutes is spent on point, on task. If they start to waver and tell me stories about their old dog or grab the picture off the mantle of their past dog, tell me, oh, I, I, I scare them back on track. I said, oh, what a lovely picture. But let's talk about now, you know, what your dog did next. Or we'll get right back into the program because you have that finite amount of time. Mm-hmm. And I take 
steps at each point of the conversation. It's very structured, very uh, strategic in how I talk to the clients. So right from, to give you some examples, right from the immediate onset of the conversation, I take direction of the conversation. Because if this client starts saying, oh, why don't we sit here and look at this this picture and this is what he does and they start talking, you've lost control of the flow. So it's really important to take control. It seems like a real simple thing to do, but it can really dictate just how much the next 89 minutes are going to go. Mm. So I do take control of them. Oh, nice to meet you. Can we sit at your table right there? That looks like a great spot to meet and I can get more notes. And then the second... Uh, stage is really building rapport and trust. If you don't have the trust of your clients, in all cases, of course, but in regression cases, especially, you're not going to get much participation. So the strategies to really make sure that happens is to be empathetic. So you have to be an empathetic listener. If you're not, you're not going to get the client's trust because they're going to get divulged often very personal, sensitive information that uh, is full of emotion. Mm. And if we're not, if we don't recognize that and 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 be good listeners, and most importantly, show the client that we are listening to their pain points and what they're experiencing, we're going to lose them. I don't care how good of a training strategy you lay out there. If they don't trust you, they're not going to carry out on that. So building trust and rapport in an initial 10, 15 minutes is really important because if I don't have a trust and rapport, guess what's going to happen? I'm not going to have the information I need later on to help this dog. So they might gloss over bite history. They might say, oh yeah, you just got to nip to the postal man or the the male uh, delivery person and then you find out he sent the person like the hospital with like multiple bites and broken <laughs> bones and things like that so you get a lot of that resilience or or pushback rather when you don't have trust with the client so i build a lot of trust and then i get into the sensitive information stage and that's where i do a lot of empathetic listening so when they're telling me things i'm replying back in a way that says i'm listening to you. i can understand the pain point you're having or the pain you're having Make sure you let them know that during the sensitive information stage. Then I get right into, okay, we can help. And I I kind of assess the overall prognosis in the case based on all the information they gave me. So prognosis is giving the client a reasonable expectation based on all the variables they just told you. Because if you don't do that, that's detrimental to us as trainers and consultants because what's going to happen is we're not on the same page as the client. So if we don't set realistic expectations to begin with, to say, okay, your dog is biting at a level five and sending people to the hospital. And they're, in their mind, is like they might be saying, when can my dog be a therapy dog? Right? <laughs> or when can I take my yeah. dog to the library so kids can read to it, even though I mauled the child last week? You know? yeah. So we've got to set realistic expectations because guess what? If we don't, we're going to be putting ourselves in positions for burnout and compassion fatigue and all the things that can happen to trainers. So. Uh, it's very important. So at that point in the conversation, right after I uh, listen to all of the history on the dog, I will tell them why their dog is doing what they're doing. But I also give them what I expect to be realistic in their case based on a number of variables. Then I sit and digest that information because then I can sit back and watch them and you see the expression on their face and you're going to get clients that are like, oh, okay, thank you so much. This is not as bad as I thought it was. Or you'll get clients that say, wow, I really have a problem here. I have to think about this. And so you're going to be able to give them appropriate recommendations for safety management and behavior change, even if you if you even go that route, based on their particular case. And that's why the people part of the equation is so important. Because if you want to be successful in aggression cases, you've got to be successful with the people. So a lot of focus is spent on that and, and the structure and the flow of the consult. Mm. 
I just want to pick apart that conversation a little bit further, Michael, because you hit on a really important topic and one that's really close to my heart and probably many of the listeners, probably all of us in general, because there are so many people that when we've had aggression consults and we sat down with them to work out what is the solution where we need to go from here. The interesting thing is, is that the majority of people, they do have that concept in their mind that once this dog has gone through this journey, I can live a normal life with this dog. I'm going to get the fairy tale ending. I think for me, that's probably been one of the hardest conversations that I have to have with people is this is forever management from here on in. You just can't have my dog goes down to the park and hangs out with all the dogs now. This is not going to happen. You can have the, I can walk my dog down the street and I can ignore other dogs and there's principles that we can adhere to, but you're not going to get that fairy tale ending with your dogs. One of the most successful cases that I ever had was an extremely aggressive dog. And I've got to be very mindful about how I talk about it on this show because I know the people who own the dog listen to the show but they'd been to many, many different trainers. And the only reason that it worked with me is because I was far more patient with them and the situation than everybody else was. Everybody was rushing to get a result with the dog. But I I said to them, this is a very long game and it's going to be a very painful game too. Like we're going to have to change everything. And as soon as we got results, we were very successful with the results that we got from the dog. That gave them security even against my advice to go out and allow the dog to mingle with other dogs. And it ended very badly. They came back, they wore their hat in their hand. It was a very upsetting situation for all of us because it really, it counteracted all the advice, all the training, all the patience, all the work that they'd done, all the work I'd done, great advice that other people who intervened throughout the program It was just such a sad thing to see that could have been completely prevented altogether and that dog still could have maintained a great lifestyle if only they had persevered with all the changes in the programming that we went through. So that really hit me in the guts. I really took quite an impact over that one because it was such a lot of work and I put a lot of heart and soul into it. So did they fundamentally. I mean, it was a, you know, it was a very emotional um, situation for all of us because the outcome for the dog just wasn't really beneficial or good after that. Long story short, they decided that they didn't want to euthanize the dog. They did want to keep the dog, but the dog basically had to live under lock and key forevermore, where effectively we had the dog out in society, enjoying itself and living a great lifestyle. So I'm sure you've seen that as well. And that was why I wanted to just really pick into that situation because a lot of people who deal with aggression and specialists that uh, have dealt with that area, they always come back to that point. Because they are sympathetic and empathetic people, they must be if they're going to progress into this profession. But they always say, that's the one thing that kills me in the job is when you go through all the hard work and you get people that are agreeable and you can see that they're wonderful, intelligent, skilled people. But for some reason, that seed just gets into their head that I can have the fairy tale ending now, like I'm safe. We've gone through all this pain. We're not the same people anymore. And bingo, it's just it catapults you into not only recreating the problem, but expanding it exponentially. You hit on a, real, a couple of really good points there. So I want to uh, kind of talk about those a little bit more. One of them being the commitment. And I'm sorry you had to go through that in your team and also the client. I mean, there's a lot of, I'm sure, guilt from the client's point of view and also stress mm. from that particular incident, but also you and your team, you know, putting in all that work and 
Yeah, there was a community behind it. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Mm. What can happen to many of us, whether, again, the people that are um, invested into the dog's future, it can really have a significant impact when we put in all that time and effort and see things not go in the direction we want. And it's, again, human emotions, human expectations, human realistic expectations really come into play. So I use a couple different rules of thumb. One of them is the 5149 rule in my work. Now it's gonna be a little bit different because if you're doing board and train or you're working on a lot of the training yourself, of course, you're putting in a lot of the work. Mm. There's obviously differences in board and train scenarios and private consultations. But for the trainers that are listening in that are doing private consults, remember the 5149 rule. And that's where you're gonna give 51% of your effort and expect 49% in the client's return. And you're going to even tell the client that you're going to say, listen, I'm here for you. Anytime you need me, set up whatever communication channel you have, you can get, you can reach me. Let me know when you need help. Let me know. And of course, that's on top of your whatever structured training plan you're giving them or consults you're doing with them. But that is a good balance because once as trainers, we start going into 80-20 or 90-10, I want to save all the dogs. I can totally fix this dog. I'm going to help this dog. I'm going to fix as many aggression cases as I can. And I'm giving 90% and the clients are giving me 10% based on simply because I'm giving 90%. That's the fastest road to burnout and Mm -hmm. compassion fatigue in our industry. So uh, it's a very good rule to follow. When I got to that rule, when I discovered that, wait a minute, let me shift this because I'm getting really burnt out here. And I, and I did a few years ago where I'm saying, I've got to do something that's going to shift this dynamic. And once I made that change, I said, let me see what happens if I expect the same from clients and give them that rule, put a, be very straightforward and right up front with it. I can tell you, it made the most significant change in how I approach cases and how I build the caseload or how many cases I'm taking because it makes things doable, realistic for me, but also ensures that I'm not going to burn out. All right. And if you want to burn out quick, take only aggression cases <laughs> all year long. Yeah. Right? It's, you've got to have, you've got to like them. And I will say that again, you could, it's a great way to make a living. There's no shortage of aggression in dogs, but it is a, you've got to like doing it. So use that 5149 rule in your, your client communications and your contact as best you can. You know, there's going to be exceptions. Of course, you're going to get attached to certain dogs. You're going to have your favorites and you can shift that dynamic depending on your energy. Uh, a very, very important thing to do. But for a setting, going back to what you're saying, Glenn, about the, you know, when clients are have a management failure, for instance, or something happens where you really hammered that whole point home, you know, make sure the dog is muzzled in this environment or make sure you're walking the dog on leash in this particular area, avoid that certain area. It's very normal for humans, again, to test things. Mm. We like to push things. We like to see dogs being successful. We like to try that successful moment and then tell our dog trainer, hey, guess what I just did? Mm -hmm. Isn't that amazing? And at the same time, you know, like cringing, oh my gosh, the dog's at the library with children crawling all over it like a pony. Not a good potential outcome there. Um, So sometimes we have to bite our tongue, but that's natural human behavior is to see our students or our kids or our dogs do well. So it's very, very normal for clients to do those things. So I like to use to to remedy that, to really, again, drive the point home of good management or when management is really needed. I like to use a lot of human analogies. And most humans can understand this struggle with weight gain or weight loss. 
who haven't you met that's been on some sort of diet at some point in their life, right? So I'll ask the client. <laughs> you are talking you, to the king of this. You're, yeah. now, you're take, now you're talking my language because yeah. I'm right? kind of so fit and kind of fat. Let's. <laughs> it, is, it is an easy thing for most people to grasp onto the struggles of it, but it's a great analogy so that clients can quickly grasp on what's happening. And I'll say, well, different dogs are going to have different behavioral weights. Some dogs, they're maybe 10 pounds overweight, and their worst issue is they maybe jump up on the counter every six months or so, right, to, to grab something off the counter. So they're, they're not very behaviorally heavy. Then you have some dogs that are much more heavy. They're, they're going, it's going to take some time to strip away that weight with the right habits and changing the environment as well. So let's say you've got a 500-pound dog now. Uh, but still not the worst case. You know, you've got a 500-pound dog. There's a lot of behavioral weight there that you need to lose, and it's going to take time, and it's going to take management changes. So for your dog to be successful, and I use this analogy actually for boarding trains, we can send your dog off to Glen, so like fat camp for kids kind of, and, and it's like a you know, really good program, and your dog's going to lose 400 pounds there. It's going to come back 100-pound, well-oiled, fit machine. But guess what? You've got to get rid of the Twinkies. And mm, I'm not mm. sure if they have those in Australia, but you got to get rid of all the cakes and ice mm. cream and all that stuff in your house to set your dog up for success. Because if you don't, guess what's going to happen? It's going to go, it's very easy to go back to those old habits of eating those Twinkies and all those sugars. And your big dog's behavioral weight's going to come back. Mm -hmm. Now, in some cases, you have a dog that's got a heavy behavioral weight and diabetes. And so all it takes is one Twinkie for potential catastrophic outcomes for your dog. And so in your case, you've got to be really careful, not as much as you want a chance rewarding your dog with that Twinkie once in a while. It could be catastrophic in your case. And so we've got to be very careful with managing the environment. So most clients find grasp onto those analogies and like, yeah, that, that makes sense. I've, I've got to really focus on this and not put my dog in a situation where it can be really detrimental. Some clients, I will also mention, since we're on the topic, some clients aren't aware of all the ramifications involved for dog bites. So sometimes we have to, it's a conversation I always try to have if I feel the clients aren't aware of particular ramifications. It's going to differ by country and where you live and, mm. and all those things. But in some places, it can be very, very catastrophic for the dog if the dog bites somebody, uh, not only for the homeowner, but for the dog. It could be you know, dangerous dog designations, vicious dog laws in some places in the States. Uh, it could be uh, disposal orders by animal control where they're saying you have to euthanize your dog. And so there's there's some often very lofty or, or catastrophic, I should say, uh, outcomes for these dogs. So I make sure the clients are aware of the seriousness of mm -hmm. dog bites as well. So that way they're less apt to take that risk of saying, look at what my dog did, you know, look at him swimming in the deep end yeah. without any life protection equipment. Right. So those analogies can be very, very helpful. Mm. I love that. That That's a great one. I'm going to steal that. Hey, I want to just go travel back in time, just a few minutes, your 5149 rule. I've heard lots of different versions of that, you know, never get more invested than the client, all these kinds of things. But you just said something that I think is key and I just want to sort of expand on a little bit. And you're the first person I've heard say it, and I think it's really important, is you said that now and again, when you really like the dog or for whatever reason, you can fuck with those ratios. And I feel like that's one of the things that gets left out of that conversation mm. is that burnout, like we often get told in these sorts of cases that burnout and compassion fatigue happens because you care too much. And if you care too much all the time, then yep, for sure. But I feel like certainly there are cases where that, 
can come about by not caring as much as you could have or should have or wanted to. I think that's worth acknowledging because you just kind of dropped it as a little one-liner, but I think it's more important than that, right? Mm. You're the first person I've, I've heard say that out loud, that, you know, sometimes if the dog's important to you or the circumstance or whatever it is, you know, for whatever reason, you can just say to the owners, like, fuck you, I'm giving 100%, right? Like, and, and, uh, and you're banging on their door and harassing them because I have a case that I think about where I just sort of didn't get too involved and you like, I thought I put the people on the right path and they were doing the work and they just had that one bad experience and they called me to cancel a session and just said, Oh, we've, we've euthanized a dog. And like, it was definitely, that's not the path that that dog needed to go down. And if I had just put in more effort or, you know, I was trying one technique and I, I definitely should have given them another. There was a lot to that. And I think that if I had just been more invested in that particular case, because I did like the dog and I, I thought it was an easy case and it wasn't for them. Like I grossly misread. For them, it was horrific, the worst case scenario. And for me, it was like, ah, this that is- Tuesday. Yeah, this will be easy, right? Mm. And and I didn't acknowledge that enough for them. So I certainly let them and, and that dog down for sure. So I think that's worth acknowledging. That shit rattles around in your head too. Oh, for sure. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's absolutely okay to feel that way. Mm. It's, it's actually a good thing to feel that way, to, to question what you're doing. Because if you're going through every case saying, I, would, I did great there. I was awesome. Pat me on the back. You mm. know, and that's, you know, if you do that, you're, you're setting yourself up for other problems. Mm. I do think it's important to note that we, we have, we have an ethical responsibility to be our best for our clients. Right. So we go in there and that's one of the things I get a question a lot from my students is, you know, if I want to second guess things, second guessing is a good thing because that's, you're saying I'm evaluating my techniques. I'm not just saying everything I do is going to work hundred percent of the time. You're going in there saying, I'm going to evaluate my own work, which is necessary, but it's important to be, you know, uh, to put, be putting a forth that, that effort, because if we don't take care of ourselves, if we don't, you know, take care of ourselves in terms of not taking on too much and taking on cases that we care about uh, with the degree that we want to, right? Not forced to or not feeling guilty about, but the, what we, we give ourselves that space to want to take on those clients. Now we can do an 80-20 ratio with that particular client because we're at our best. And that's our ethical responsibility because if we, if we don't, if we're doing things that we're not recognizing are being a detriment to our performance, guess what's going to happen? We're not being ethically responsible. So second guessing is is highly recommended <laughs> for uh, ensuring, you know, you are checking your work, you know. Another thing I want to touch on, and I was thinking in my, uh, as I'm sort of thinking out a structure of questions to ask, I was going to ask this last, but maybe it'll be a sad ending. So I'll, I'll jump it in now. <laughs> have you ever encountered a case or can you speak to a case where you have to say to the people, there's no changing this. This is not fear. This is not, you know, we can't recover from this. This dog wants to kill people. He will, or, or whatever it is, other dogs or whatever. He wants to do that. There is no changing it. He's not fearful. He's not, this is who he is. And we can put a mask on it and we can maybe control it with obedience, you know, that kind of stuff. But this is a dog who wants to hurt other dogs or people or whatever it is. Have you had many of those? And can you speak to those a little bit? Uh, quite a few at this point, you know, once you start taking aggression cases and you start getting referrals from other trainers on cases, you're going to generally get a segment of the population where you're seeing some pretty uh, severe cases and dogs that are very dangerous and they've been deemed dangerous and they want a second opinion sometimes. So yes, there are dogs out there that it's just, it's, they're dangerous. They're a danger to society. They are, they don't want anything to do with people or other dogs sometimes. 
And it's, you have to question, you know, is it really fair to keep this dog alive in such a management? What's, you know, there's things worse than actually death to the animal. And one of those things can be, you know, warehousing a dog in a six by six small run for the nine or 10 years left, right? With no enrichment, no interaction, no social, for a dog that doesn't want to be social anyways. So there are those cases that do come across and, the cases I see is a little bit skewed towards probably seeing more of those cases. So mm. vast majority of dogs on the planet are just fine, lovely dogs, but there are again, a handful of cases that do come across. It's mm. very, very dangerous. Michael, do you find that when you're speaking to these people that when you kind of give the verdict of what needs to happen next, that you see relief on their face or do you see anger or disappointment I know where I go with this because a lot of times when I'm dealing with people, when it's that bad, that it's kind of like a lot of relief and there's a lot of tears. There's a lot of sadness, you know, like we're all having a hard moment talking about this, but you can all, it's like they've been let out of prison because they're basically jailed by the the way the dog has been behaving uh, most of its lifestyle. So when you do go around there and you pretty much drop the bomb for them after you've done your analysis and look through the, the, you know, like you've said, you've gone through the case history, you're usually a referral from another trainer and you've sat down and pretty much diagnosed this from the start right up until when you arrived and you just know there's something diabolically wrong here and this situation will never improve with them, with me, with another trainer, with another owner. It's just not going to get better any location this dog moves into and you finally say to them, euthanasia is the option at this point in time that I would strongly recommend. I see relief. How do you feel in the States? Like how are people that you're talking to managing this situation? Yeah. Here's the thing. It's that you will be hired or your services will be sought after for the sole reason of confirming their decision for Mm. behavior euthanasia. So they've already made up the decision. They just want to hear it from a professional mm-hmm. that works with these kind of cases that says you're you're doing the right thing here and you can rest a little easier as best you can with the information I'm giving you and confirming your you know your thoughts. So that could be the case sometimes. And I'm I'm called in a lot for those cases where mm-hmm. they've already made up this decision. I don't I'm not changing anybody's mind in a lot of cases. They've already made a decision. They just want to hear it from me that says this dog is dangerous or this dog is not suitable for this particular environment. Um, so that is uh, definitely a reality of our, our work. And it's really important to recognize that as well, you know, because if you go in to all cases thinking there's never going to be a behavioral euthanasia case, you are setting yourself up for, again, straight to that road of compassion, fatigue, and burnout. So we do have to recognize when clients have already made up that decision. Again, that goes back to what we were talking about earlier is the real important focus on the people, understanding and reading people well, understanding when they've kind of made that decision already, or maybe when they need some help making that decision, or there's some factors that they haven't considered yet. Uh, I want to also mention, though, the, you know, I never actually say to anybody, you need to euthanize your dog. And the reason why is because it's the, it's not my decision, it's their dog. So Mm. it's either the shelter's dog, the rescue's dog, or the, the client's dog they're it's their you know they should be the ones making that decision now that being said what i'm going to do is i'm going to go in there and spend a good deal of time explaining all of the factors that they should consider for their particular dog in case there's actually 18 different things i evaluate i don't go through every single step in with clients but i will 
uh, go through that process and pick out the most important components that's relevant to their dog. And I'll cover that with them. I'll explain sometimes the bite scales and why they matter. I'll explain, you know, management and the potential for management and potential for behavior change strategies. I look at every detail, the dog's sex, breed, age, uh, where they got the dog from. And I go through all those things if they're relevant to the case. And by the time I'm done with that, the client's armed with information. They can make their own decision. Yep. So then I'll, I'll tell them, you know, take a moment to think about that or maybe even take a few days to think about that. And we can certainly uh, talk more once you've kind of made a decision or decided where you want to go with this case. So mm. that could be our job sometimes is just really educating the client on potential for outcome. Mm. It's something that when I'm coaching students about aggression, it's something that I dub the onion because it's full of so many layers and usually there is a core that can make you cry. So, you know, we talk about that extensively. I've just said this, this is a, it's also a prickly pear and you've just got to be so delicate and careful how you're dealing with this situation. Because as you said, just going in there and saying you should euthanize this dog can be a very powerful discussion armed with a lot of emotion. I like your way, Michael. I think that your use of terms and languages, and I've heard you talking about this in your podcast and I've thought, "Mm, here's a man who really has, put some heavy weight behind the way that you not only deal with aggression, but also the way that you deal with people. And I like that. I think that you're certainly one of the more masterful people that I've listened to talking about how you manage people. And I know there's other very good people out there because I've listened to them as well, but your language resonates well with me. And I I think when we talk about self-improvement, I thought there's some things that you're saying that I think are probably things that many of us should adopt into our language as well and how we're talking to people. Because sometimes it's very easy as, with us as professionals. You know, we can go in there, we, we can be tired, we can be exhausted, we can be emotional ourselves. But sometimes we forget the most important part is how difficult and harrowing this is for the people that are dealing with it and how invasive it is to have to go through, you know, not only having the trainer come around there to diagnose and assess the dog, but they might have had local law enforcement around there that have been harassing them. They might have had neighbours that have been literally, you know, they're the Frankenstein monster and they're outside their front with pitchforks and ready to destroy them. These people are very, their skin is so thin at this point in time that anything that you say or suggest to them could rip straight through them. And you've got to be so careful and and manage that situation so delicately. So what I'm trying to say is I appreciate what you're doing and how you say it. I really appreciate those kind words. It's something I've tried to strive for and, and i'm glad that it's it's showing in some ways you mm. know because you know kindness kindness to the people empathy uh, are go such so much longer of a way than any other ways of talking to clients that i've seen so um i do you know implore others to you know adopt that same kindness to the people that they're working with and remember that it's not generally not their fault you know it's their it's people just trying to do the right thing with their dog Mm. And uh, it's it's hard to see through that sometimes. I know there's cases out there that just, of course, make us think a little differently sometimes. But uh, again, everybody has their own journey and their own experiences with their dog. And we have to just unpack and unravel that and help them navigate that journey. Mm. I think you said it in one of your earlier episodes where nobody wanted to get into this situation where they thought, oh, I'll just take a, an aggressive dog on for shits and giggles. You know, like they get this dog when it's with them the majority of the time, it's an awesome dog until they take it out into a public space or until some form of stimuli comes into their home or, you know, into their neighborhood. And suddenly this dog is, you know, like we said before, the analogy of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, 
So at home, it's Dr. Jekyll. It's a reasonable dog. It's a fun dog. You're having a good lifestyle with this dog. Then suddenly something emerges within the dog. It changes. I've gone kind of full circle on my aggressive dog sort of stuff. So I was probably pretty bad early days when I was doing uh, civilian dogs while I was still in the army because to me, like all my imprinting was on aggressive dogs, but it wasn't an issue that they were aggressive. Like we, they were meant to be and they wanted to kill everyone they met and you just told them to do something else and they didn't, right? Because it was like control through obedience because they were properly aggressive dogs. And so I think that's what I had to, well, certainly I fucked up a lot of people early on, just like, you don't need to fix this issue. You just train really good obedience and the, the problem is gone. And it's to an extent it, that can be true, right? But it, like then when I came to understand, you know, when I was dealing with more and more pet dogs, I was like, oh, these dogs aren't aggressive. They're fearful. And they're just doing these things to create space. And then when I understood that, I was like, oh, okay. Like now we're doing to real, you know, what we would normal aggressive dog treatment that we usually go through. But I always found myself kind of longing that when I would turn up for an aggressive dog case, when I get there, that the dog really was just a killer because then I could just go like, oh, we're back to my model. Like we're back in the comfort zone for me. Mm -hmm. Like you just have to get really good at control work. Like, and there's no problem here. Like if the dog's sound, he's mentally stable. He just really wants to hurt people or things or whatever. I'm like, that's totally manageable. Like you can just become a exceptional dog trainer and you put more value into the other things and you'll never stop feeling that way because he's incapable of it. That's where his genetics have, have landed him, but you'll be able to live a great life with this dog. You'll be able to fulfill him and all this kind of stuff. And I found myself longing for those, but that was so few and far between, mm. right? It was like, oh, you get there like, oh, this dog's so scared. I have to fucking build him up and I have to do all these things. <laughs> and every time I'd knock on the door, I'd be just thinking, God, I hope this dog comes flying down and legit tries to bite me and like his ears are up while he's doing it. And he's thinking like he's dominating me. And I was like, yes, then we can just teach some really good obedience and never have to fix this issue. So Oh, that's such a great, you know, such a great example of we are just the sum of our experiences and what we've been exposed to and all that. It's just such a good, good point of that, because, you know, if you go into the homes, like a lot of us, a lot of the trainers start out on the opposite side of the coin, right? So we're working with fearful cases or we're working on counter conditioning. And if they were to stumble into a home with a dog that like you used to work with, None of that would work. No. You're not going to counter condition a dog that's having a good old time fighting people <laughs> to protect somebody or that's their job. You can't, you're not going to touch it with any kind of counter condition because you're not changing any underlying association. It's just so interesting. And it's, and it's, but it's, it's a really important point because that's important to stay open to, to notice that just as you did, you're like, wait a second, these dogs are a little different <laughs> and the same other side of the coin. Because, you know, what's going to happen, what usually happens is that somebody that is very good at counter conditioning, once they stumble upon their first dog, that's from working lines from, you know, Czechoslovakia, or, you know, yeah. German Shepherd, then lands in an American home or something. It's it's a completely different ballgame. And mm. they're going to fail miserably with that case if it's their first time working with a dog that's supremely confident in the behaviors they're displaying. So. It's a, it's a very good point you made there and <laughs> a good example of, of, you know, why we have to remain open. Yeah, totally. Hey, another thing I wanted to touch on was uh, you're kind of known for using stuffed dogs, right? And I've seen commentary on that. And I've actually many years ago was defending you heavily in a group where people were talking about, you know, it's not a great thing to do. And it was my fault. I started it. So let me tell you like a little story was <laughs> I once had this dog. I only had him for a very short period of time before, like he was just in my hands over a number of weeks before he was sold. And he was the supreme being, like he was the most confident 
powerful, dominant dog I think I've ever seen in real life. And as a result, was one of the most social dogs on the planet because he just had nothing to worry about from anyone. So here in Australia, we have these guide dog association like donation boxes and it's a Labrador statue. And we were walking down the street one time and he just kind of puffed up, right? Like just kind of got, you could see he was concerned and I'd never seen that in him before. And then his hackles went up and I looked, I was like, what is he looking at? And he's staring at this guide dog statue, right? And I'm thinking, what is, like, I, I really misread how dangerous this situation was. And he was hackles up. And I'd never seen this dog concerned about anything. And I tell you, like, I had put that dog into some some situations that he'd never cared. You know, he went on to the police and was a phenomenal dog. But as we got to this Labrador statue, he just got bigger and bigger. He never barked once. He kept his mouth shut, but he never, he didn't change eyes with it. And the second he was within striking ground, he grabbed it by the back of its little fictional neck and tried to kill it to the point where I had to choke him off of it and run away with money flying everywhere and people wondering why the fuck that was happening. <laughs> and it was that, you know, and I spoke to Roger Abrantes about this when we spoke at length about it, because it was a really interesting day for me in that he was such a dominant and powerful dog that he just couldn't imagine a dog that didn't submit to him. Like the the idea that a dog would give no feedback to mm. him in any way, shape or form was like, I, I think that what happened in his mind was he was like, I have to kill that thing because if it's more powerful than me, if it's not even going to acknowledge my existence, it has to die. And he was never dog aggressive ever. He would play with puppies and dogs and whatever. Like he was a super social, like, you know, beautiful, loving dog, but not that fucking day. I tell you. And, and I told that story once and then people were like, oh, this is why we should never use stuffed dogs and whatever in aggression. I'm like, my point was, and I don't want to steal your thunder because I know you're going to explain it, but was like, I wouldn't fucking make any big decisions about that, but that's a starting point. Like if like it's a, it's a, like, I'm not going to then say, oh, well, he's now dog aggressive dog, right? It was just like some infantrying, some interesting information that I could put into the database of things I know about this dog. Right. There's something there, an observation of, of right. a behavioral change. And so please, Michael, talk about the way that you use stuffed dogs. So, yeah, that's a good, very good conversation to have about stuffed dogs. So stuffed dogs are used for a few different reasons. Uh, one is if you want to travel around giving seminars and you're going to the airport or then you re want to look like a really weird person, <laughs> go through an airport with some stuffed dogs on your arms. That's always going to bring some conversation. Or the neighbors, if you're working with a stuffed dog with a client and you've got a dog on a leash, a stuffed dog on a leash, and you're standing in their driveway, <laughs> that always gets some interesting reactions. Uh, but stuffed dogs, I have a lot of pictures on my social media with me and stuffed dogs. And the reason why is because we're practicing uh, defensive handling techniques with the stuffed dogs in the workshops. So most of the social media stuff of me with a stuffed dog is we are actually doing leash lassoing, muzzles, basically things you would not want to practice on a real live dog because it would be terribly unfair for that live dog to have a leash lassoed muzzle put on it while somebody's practicing a hundred mm -hmm. times. So stuffed dogs are for defensive handling and uh, emergency handling tactics that you would, that you would see in one of my workshops. So like a dog tries to attack you, what to do with the leash and all those typical techniques you would use. Um, so that's one reason, very good reason for using stuffed dogs. The second reason is um, if I'm doing some distance work with the client and I need a decoy dog. Yeah. 
The problem with stuffed dogs is that you're going to get false positives, so they're not recommended for assessments. And that's that's a really important point to make is you can get some initial information if you're putting a stuffed dog out to see what another dog would do to your stuffed dog, but don't take that as the own as the decider. Put that into the column of information, just as you were mentioning, Pat, information that's going to be maybe helpful to know, but we'll see if we're going to actually use that information. So for assessments, you can get some initial reactions at a distance. Dogs sometimes can't tell it's a stuffed dog until they actually get a little closer. Some dogs can, and some dogs are actually completely used to stuffed dogs because they've already been tested around stuffed dogs. So assessments can be useful for that. Sometimes it can be used as a decoy dog if you're working with a client and you don't have your own dog at that moment. You can use a stuffed dog, set that out if you're doing like, quote unquote, leash reactive work, that kind of thing at a distance. So they can be useful for that. They can be useful for kids too. And here's what I mean by that is that if you're teaching the child techniques to start using around the dog that was just aggressive towards that child, so low level aggression case, like maybe some growling or something at the child, it's a great way to teach that child the techniques before they actually use it on their real dog. Mm -hmm. So you get that sort of trust and handling aspect. Most kids are totally fine with that. You can reinforce them positively as well. You know, So there's a lot you can do with stuffed dogs. The other thing too, is you can use the stuffed dog to show a client how to properly fit equipment if they've got a dog with handling issues. So this is how you put on a particular harness or something and you wanna make sure it's snug there. So that way the client's not for the first time trying to fit a you know six clip harness on their dog that has issues with hand, any kind of handling. Um, so you can help the client learn that. So lots of benefits for stuffed dogs. The one thing I avoid is the, the assessment as a sole predictor of what the dog's going to do to other dogs in the future. You get a lot of false positives yeah. uh, when you do that. So, Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that, mate. I appreciate mm. it because it's just one of those things that I, I see people saying all kinds of stupid stuff, making assumptions about what that stuffed dog's used for. And you know, when I saw it in this thread one time, people complaining about it. And I was like, you know, like even in the military, we use stuffed dogs, right? Like when you're learning to free fall parachute with a dog, you don't just strap the dog on. Like we have, it's called a red dog. And it's like the same way you'd see a red gun, like a totally fake, but like correct proportions gun. Mm. They've got one of those that's a dog and you learn to fly under canopy and how to free fall and that kind of stuff with a, a fake dog so that if anything goes wrong, you can cut away the fake dog and it falls 20,000 yeah. feet rather than your real dog, which is now fucking free falling, right? That, that's a happy so, yeah. story to share on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's, it's like- Context like, matters, right? That's yeah, right. And, and I think so totally one learner at a time, right? Like this is what we talk about when, when, I'm when people want to learn to decoy and you go, yeah, cool. Like if you want to learn to decoy, it's better to have have dogs that know how to work a suit so that it's one learner at a time. And it's mm. the same, like if you're learning to uh, free fall skydive with the dog, then you learn to do it. And then you, when you're very competent with it, then you bring the dog on board. And I think that it, like, no one argues that when you talk about free fall skydive, everyone's like, oh, that makes total sense. But then when you go, okay, well, how about fitting a, a muzzle that you're making in an emergency out of a leash? Why, like, that makes total sense to me as well, right? Like, why not do that to an inanimate object to get the, the reps in, a, in action so that when it's real, you've at least prepared? Yeah, it's, it's funny. Trish and I have to always give that disclaimer if they're going to share anything from the workshop, which we recommend people doing, but 
I think one of the techniques we do is a straight, it's called a straight arm. It's basically if a dog's trying to attack you, mm-hmm. it's how to keep the, if the dog's on a leash, how to keep the dog from actually being able to bite you. Mm-hmm. And it looks like you're basically stringing the dog up yeah. off the ground. It's an emergency handling technique. But can you imagine somebody shares that on Facebook, you know, like, oh, look at the technique I just learned. This <laughs> is, you know, how to get a dog to sit <laughs> or something really off like, like that. They just totally don't get it, how much damage that can do. So it's, yeah, yeah. we always tell people, you know, context matters, make sure it's say it's an emergency handling technique no i'm with you i I think it's fantastic and it it just it really ground my shit one day when people were clearly misrepresenting it and i was like hey i think it's actually really clever i think that like especially practicing emergency situations like you know we've we've said it before in the podcast like there's no such thing as rising to the occasion you sink to the level of your training Mm. and so you may as well like practice those emergency situations when it's not an emergency and exactly as you say you're not going to hang a like a real dog just like sorry buddy i got to practice just in case you decide to be an asshole like that's one of the greatest (laughs) ways to create one right so it's like here's a controlled scenario the dog that isn't real and we can do all that kind of stuff so i love it I'm putting that out into the space. I think it's super valuable. I think there's a lot of value in doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, I agree with both you saying too. I think that the journeys that we've certainly taken ourselves on and and listeners of the podcast is that we're trying to extrapolate better information and learn to be a bit more patient with what we're seeing rather than quick to judge what we're seeing on the internet because it can be so selective and it's a pinch of information that's coming from a long story. And it's certainly been a good education for me too is that Rather than just jump on the bandwagon and pick up a pitchfork and chase the monster, it's better off sometimes that you actually go to the source yourself, have a look at the whole story rather than the segment that somebody's surgically removed from there just to make their point. I think that's been a good learning curve for a lot of people. And as I said, you know, I'm taking on board that it's certainly been a growth period for me as well. So I'm appreciating that that's where a lot of better information is now coming from. Yeah. And it's a funny one because when you talk about it, say that that technique you're talking about right there, Michael, like what you would say straight arming, I just say hanging. <laughs> that's what they're doing when they come at me. We're just going straight arm, but they're hanging. And uh, people would say like, oh, we, I didn't learn to do that on a stuffed dog. I just had to do it in the moment when it was for realsies. Yeah. But I got bit a lot too. <laughs> so like, let's avoid that instead of like, yeah, I probably wouldn't get bit now by too many dogs because I know how to do that technique and I can see it coming and all that kind of stuff. But like, maybe if someone had said, yeah. hey, we're going to practice this without it being for real, yeah. maybe I would have less holes in my leg. Yeah. But we're talking about a one percenter hurt, technique right? too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a one percenter. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. And it I, doesn't hurt to get be to get bitten by a stuffed dog either. Exactly. Well, it hurts much less. <laughs> it's just your pride at that point. Hey, Michael, just before we sort of wind down this conversation, and if you're comfortable speaking on it, it was a clubhouse conversation. I heard you sort of come into a room where um, some people invited you up on the stage and you were kind of feeling a little bit jaded with the industry and you kind of spoke on that publicly. And I just sort of entered halfway through the conversation. I think you were getting a bit of beat up from the industry. What was going on there, if you don't mind me talking about that? You got to actually give me a little bit more. I can't remember what that- it, it was just a, a random room that I think Bill Church actually had it and he invited you up onto stage. And I think you were sort of feeling the crowd out that you had just been experiencing a bit of tension from, you know, people within the industry giving you a little bit of stick or something like that. Was that happening or am I imagining things? <laughs> 
I think I know which one you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it was because I had hosted another room prior to that. So I was talking, I, you know, I had just joined Clubhouse, which mm. I love because it's got, it's, it removes the, the factors we were just talking about with, you know, people with text comments. You don't, you can't hear the inflections in their voice and mm. people are very quick to judge with, you know, Facebook or Twitter or those kind of formats. But with Clubhouse, you've, you're here. it's just like now we're talking to each other. We can hear the inflections. We can mm. have a good conversation. And so I think I had hosted another room. I, you know, just started out there and I was hosting another room on uh, some topic related to dog regression. What else? Um, and <laughs> I think that one of the things I was talking about was um, maybe the number of sessions I was doing with certain clients or, and I guess just like we had mentioned earlier, like people will take something and just digest it and consume it for their own needs for what they want to tell others what mm. they heard. And I think it was about the number of sessions I was doing with a client or something like that. And so I joined this other room because it was a dog training room. So I thought, okay, let me jump into here. And I think they were actually talking about me, but I didn't catch much of the conversation because I was driving. So I wasn't paying much attention. I was just randomly popping around into clubhouse rooms. But anyways, I think that someone noticed I was there and they brought me up on stage. And it was just, I think I was talking about why I would do something like 80 sessions with the clients, right? So my previous room, I had talked about like how many, one of the questions was like, how many sessions would you do? The subject was like on overall prognosis. And that's a perfect example of how things can get taken out of context because 80 sessions for any trainer, you're going to be like, what is happening there? They're either really taking advantage of that client or they are not doing what they're supposed to be doing in that case. But when somebody asked further, they realized it was more of a day training scenario. So it's one, I don't do a lot of day training, but some clients I will. This particular client uh, has some physical disabilities, which they cannot do any of the training on their own. It's actually dangerous for this particular client mm. to uh, do many of the techniques or even walk her dog. So wealthy clients and one committed to this German Shepherd that, again, I will put in one of my best client lists because even though she couldn't do the training, she would make sure this dog had everything it needed. And this dog was from a real bad breeding type of hoarding situation. So just this dog was German Shepherd is bred over and over, was really dog reactive, was all for good reasons, and was also very under-socialized with people. So she goes to the house completely shut down wouldn't eat, wouldn't move for days, very fearful, started to display aggression. And the client asks me, like, can you come over and help my dog? My German Shepherd is starting to growl, lunge at people, uh, has never really met people, but I have the money. I save animals. I donate to rescues all the time. So a very well-meaning client, just not equipped at all for the task. And so I said, I think this is going to require either somebody to come to your home to train. She's like, how about you? I'm like, I don't usually do that. She's like, oh, you know, I'm going to do this and I'm committed. And so she sold me based on her commitment to animals. That really, you know, she really got me there. And when she explained just how much she does, I'm like, okay, I'm I'm in with you. So started doing day training with this client, with this dog. First session, I went to a park with, there's no other people or anything around, but like, like, so like this 500 meters in any direction, you could see nothing there. We got out of the car. She sniffed the ground for 30 seconds, got back in the car. And we went home. Mm-hmm. That was the session one. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to 80 sessions later. So 80 day training sessions with me taking the dog out for a few minutes at a time, gradually graduating two hours at a time. The dog was a complete night and day difference. No treats with this dog, no games or anything. Cause she was 
very much into just exploring the environment into safety, but allowing her that safety and that control of the environment, taking her to those places, completely changed how she felt about people. Because all we did was work on, you can feel safe around people and other dogs, and I'm never going to put you in a situation where you feel uncomfortable. So it was a very much a straightforward desensitization route with that particular case. But it required those 80 sessions over the course of about a year for me to make that progress. So going back to the, the clubhouse group, I felt the tension. I felt a little bit of like uh, maybe, all right, here's the guy that was just talking about 80 sessions. So what's up, guy? And I was able to explain sort of my side of the story. So I really appreciate the opportunity to be able to explain that side of the story because you guys know that doesn't always happen, mm. right? People make their decision. They put you into a hole. So here's the thing. That's sort of like a side point too is the vast majority of trainers, the vast majority of, I'll call them like public figure trainers, well-known speakers and trainers that I know a lot of because I've done a lot of conference planning and you know conferences over the years, the vast majority will say, if you email them or you contact them with a question about something you have a question about, whether it's something you agree with or not, if you ask them in a nice way, they're going to answer mm-hmm. because they're invested in their message, right? So if somebody emailed me and said, hey, Mike, I heard you did 80 sessions. That's ridiculous. What's up? You know, or in a, kind of a nice way, but they would email me. I'm going to 100% respond to them. Why? Because I want to make sure that my message is clearly delivered where it is. Uh, and then there's no misconceptions, right? And I'm going to be invested in that trainer because they're open enough to sending me an email rather than talking about it somewhere else on social media without any context. And that, mm, yeah. that's what really gets me going is when you when you see well-known trainers talked about on a certain thread or something like they're not there, reach out to them. I, I guarantee 95% of the trainers I know, that all the big names in the industry are going to be more than happy to answer any questions about something you have questions about their techniques or their protocols or acronyms. Right. Yeah. I speak pretty publicly and from experience that I don't really deal too much in aggressive dogs anymore because now I, I want the aggressive dogs that aren't fixing. Like I want to just do the control work. I like making dogs aggressive rather than sort of trying to stop it. But for a reason. Yeah. Like for work, that's Mm. what I'm into. Yeah. And sort of side note is one of the reasons I really stopped taking on the sort of pet behavioral aggression cases is because I like my timings doesn't really allow for it. I work different places, different days and that kind of stuff. But I, from experience kind of have said that I think that on the cases where I go a more balanced approach, I am quicker than on cases where I am limited to just using positive reinforcement. And that's been my experience. And I usually, I'm probably guilty of generalizing that across the industry and then saying that, you know, people who use a more balanced approach effectively are probably quicker than people who don't. And there's no right or wrong way. It's just that that's been my experience. But to speak to what you're saying there about, like, if someone said that anybody spent 80 sessions with a dog, to me, that's a very uninteresting piece of information absent any context because there's people I've done 200 sessions with and they're still working their journey because in sport dogs, like we train every week, right? Mm. So like they've booked me every week and I've been training with them for five years. And so we've got to be over 200. And who cares, right? If you're ethical about it and you and the client are having a like an open, honest conversation and they're getting value for service and they're happy to pay you or yeah, trade I mean. off or barter system, who, who fucking cares? Exactly. So like the number of sessions anybody spends with any client as a sole metric yeah. is a very unuseful piece of information. <laughs> but, but, you know, whatever. They gave me the opportunity to explain my side. So I really appreciate that. That, you know, that openness to mm. learning more about, you know, why would somebody do 80 sessions? Because it is, yeah, as you mentioned, it's kind of like, oh, that's what they want to look at. And it's fine. I'll explain it. You yeah. know, I have no problems, you know, explaining yeah. anything I do. 
Yep. Anyway, people are weird. <laughs> <laughs> hey, mate, I'm going to wrap it up. I've really uh, enjoyed this and I, I really appreciate giving you time. I know you're a really busy guy. Give us all your details. Where can, how can people find more information on you? Anybody that's just like finding out about you through us, if they're not already listening to your stuff, they're not following you, send them your way. How do they do that? Yeah, I appreciate that. The uh, aggressivedog.com website, you know, that's the easiest <laughs> way to remember it. I've got everything uh, as far as uh, any courses, conferences, the By the End of the Dog podcast is on there as well. So you can find the direct links or you can search that up on any major podcasting platform. I've got the Aggression in Dogs conference coming up later this year, October 22nd to 24th. That is a uh, live stream event hopefully last live stream event for a while, mm. uh, but it's going to be different. It's going to be, think of like a talk show with dog trainers and I'm, I'm flying everybody out to a TV studio in Chicago cool. uh, to, to stream the conference. So it's going to be a little different than the zoom stuff where you're getting kind of fatigued from now. So um, that's, awesome. that's going to be all in aggression and dogs. Yep. That's October. And um, yeah, that's in clubhouse. Of course, <laughs> come on Find over there. there if you want to hear some interesting <laughs> conversations or me defend myself about why I would do it. <laughs> hey mate, I really appreciate it. You've, you've, Absolutely. you've given me course to think about a few different things. I, I, again, to reiterate, I really love that, 5149, except if you just want to break that rule because it's important to you that you do. I think that was, for me, the big takeaway from the podcast. So thank mm. you very much for that. I really appreciate it. Got yeah, so else? many things. Well, just to close on that as well, is like I said before, your language, the way that you speak to people, I think that there's a lot of people out in the industry who could benefit from how empathetic and how careful and structured you are with people when you're doing consults because it's the prickly pair of conversations that you have to have with people and often one that leads to a lot of anger, a lot of disappointment, a lot of emotions, and it can be done so much better simply based on the way that you structure and talk to people. I appreciate it. And I have to use some of those uh, fruits and vegetable analogies. <laughs> You've got the prickly pear and the peeling the uh, layers. The, the of onion. Like that. The like onion. Mm. Yeah. Start carrying around some stuffed fruit and vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thanks, man. I appreciate your time. Good to do the wrap up. That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. And then go to one you don't download us from and mm. get us there. Save us from the negative reviews of others. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to support the show, the best way to do that is Patreon. You can jump in there, pay three bucks a month and get an extra episode. I'm always working hard on those. In fact, I've overwhelmed myself and I'm struggling to get this one out on time. And another way to support the show is to jump into Teespring. Uh, you could buy yourself some cool merch, maybe a wall tapestry, a Pillow, throw rug, uh, a, what towel, do have beach throw towel? a beach yeah. towel, yeah. anything. T-shirts. T-shirts. You name it. Yeah. You just ask us and we can turn it on. You can do pretty much anything. Pretty right? much. Whatever. Anything. Phone covers, you name it. Get it. Get it all. Yep. And if you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is to jump into the Facebook group. If you want to talk dog training with a group of people, if you mm -hmm. want to sort of turn the one-way experience of a podcast into a two-way community, that's where we're pretty active. Yep. Instagram. Or if it's a, oh yeah, Instagram, Glenn's mm -hmm. running that, doing a killer job, posting memes, fire memes. Absolutely. Hot, spicy memes. Yep. And if you want to shoot us an email, we are info at the canineparadigm.com. That's it. Goodbye. Thank you, Michael.